Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running a record label. And I don't know if our listeners uh, follow along in real time and download the episodes as they come out, but if you do, um, we are a few days away from Christmas in 2020. And what better time to interview a reggae label? And today's label is Easy Star, uh, an incredible story um, and an incredible label with some incredible releases. Um, I think you're you're going to love this interview. Before we get to that, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners who have supported the podcast and the community uh, in this year and this trying year. Um, it has been um, the Probably the biggest highlight, easily the biggest highlight for me of this year, um, is getting a chance to get to know a lot of you and, and hearing um, comments from you guys and emails from you. I also want to thank you for the support of the online course, the release marketing course that we came up with this fall with a music publicist, Jamie Coletta. The support for that has been insane. And um, make sure you check that out, by the way. The, the response and the feedback we've been getting has been so affirming. And it's something that we're going to be doing more of. Jamie's module on how to create your own in-house PR campaigns um, has been doing, uh, has been getting so much positive feedback. People are finding that really helpful. You can find out more about that course by going to our website, otherrecordlabels.com. It's it's right there. It's a, it's a click away. Uh, as well as uh, this year has been huge for all of the resources that we put together. And, you know, those are downloaded um, a few dozen times a day. Those resources are grabbed uh, every single day. Uh, and that's amazing. And you can get all those free resources and tons more are coming early next year at otherrecordlabels.com. Thank you so much for being a part of this community and supporting it and sharing about it uh, and emailing me. It's so encouraging and it's been so much fun. This uh, We have incredible episodes coming up, um, some interviews that I've done recently that will be airing within the next couple of weeks, uh, including this one. Easy Star was such an interesting record label, and they had this incredibly um, successful covers record called Dub Side of the Moon, and they've had tons of records go to number one on the top reggae charts on Billboard. Um, such a pleasure to talk to Lem. I hope you really enjoy this episode. I- I'm so excited to, to find out about... Um, uh, about this label, and I've I've been kind of um, doing a bit of a deep dive in the past forty eight hours. But why don't you give me the elevator pitch on this label? Uh, I know I see you guys have been around for almost twenty five years. I don't know if that's right, but um, so there's so much for me to delve, that is. so much for me to get to get into. But but give us a background of Easy Star. Okay, we we have been around for. Uh, 25 years, you know, we essentially, the concept started in like December 94. Um, and I had the, I had, I turned to three friends and the four of us decided to go ahead, make a, a record label. And we spent, you know, what we would, we were all working our own jobs, et cetera. And we kind of would gather every, you know, twice a week for probably a year, just trying to understand what that meant. <laughs> yeah. What do we need to do? And, you know, and educating ourselves and each of us would have a, uh, you know, a topic we were supposed to, you know, I'm, I was looking at distribution. What does that mean? And someone else is looking at, do we incorporate, you know, yeah, what do we need to do? Sure. We eventually to the point where we put out our first set of records in uh we we recorded 
four singles, basically, and released them starting in 96, I believe, maybe 97. Mm. So we're always a little fuzzy as to what we call our exact, you know, anniversary date, because we incorporated, you know, probably a year, year and a half before we actually got music out. Um, You know, but in our first CD was eight, our first full length. And so, and that was, and it was funny because I was listening to a previous podcast of yours, someone talking about, you know, the, the start with a compilation. And that was what we started with, yeah. um, the usual move in the nineties. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Which is so, coming back. A lot of people are doing that again now. It, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, so we did that and, you know, what we had done at the time was that, uh, we in $5,000, the four of us. Okay. So that was our seed money. And we, you know, going to it, I kept saying, well, you know, if I, like my, my father was a poet and I always was aware growing up and, and he, but when I was in high school, but I was always aware that there were all the books that he had written were on the bookshelf. So that, that legacy was there. And mm. so for me going and doing this, was very much like if I end up with, if I can say end of it, I've got 10 records on the shelf that, that I put out, then I'll be satisfied. You sure. know, like if I feel that's good great. about that, that's a good goal to have. Wow. And so we did that. And then, um, you know, we were putting things out and our 12th release was a game changer for us in 2003, which was upside of album and mm-hmm. i can go into further detail yes. on kind of how yes. that took us three years to together etc but that essentially moved the goalposts back because suddenly you know not only did we have more opportunity because of the success of that but you could now see there's i've got my 10 records on the shelf what else can i do you know and it's we've managed to turn it into a time career um, wow. and, you know, quit day jobs and things like that. So, hmm. you know, so it's worked in that way uh, when we started, Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. So I was just going to say that when we started, you know, our, you know, we were, we listened to all kinds of music, but for me, I was like, I got college. I moved in with my partner, Michael Goldwasser, who's, who is our, you know, one of my partners and he had an enormous knowledge of reggae and a great reggae collection. Uh-huh. And I went into a deep period into reggae at that point. And so it was during that phase that we decided to do this. And for us, our philosophy going in really was that we felt at the moment that reggae had hit a really bad period of, of production and concept. And we were pining for, you know, the classic 70s and early 80s sound that we had grown up with and loved. Um, and so came kind of our core mission that combined with, we knew how criminal and badly, you know, Jamaican artists had been treated uh, by the industry. Mm. And so it was very much, you know, we very much want to come in and do things right and treat people, you know, with respect and give them the money they were supposed to get if they were to do money, things like that. Mm. And so those were kind of in pillars of what we were trying to do. It's, and, you know, over the years, we've certainly played around because we listened to so many things. We've played around, you know, we've made pitches on albums that 
aren't strictly reggae. And we've had side projects for bands that have been not strictly reggae. So, you know, and we've been brought in, my partner, my one partner and I have done on non-reggae things where we've come in to help them get a release done. But, you know, so we, we are always interested in trying other things, but you also hit a point sometimes where you're specialized in such a way that just makes sense between what's coming to you, you know, what's coming across your desk to consider and all contacts and things you know that make sense to stay in your lane, even though the lane we expect, unfortunately, you know, reggae as amazing as it is, is a fraction the overall industry and therefore even our biggest successes are typically you know are tiny compared to if we were doing indie rock or something like that you know so i read somewhere you you were talking about the investment and and you had hoped to be profitable in five years is that true yeah we i mean because you you dropped in five thousand that's a that's uh pretty risky it was and it was i mean you know you think it's twenty thousand total to start it for me, it wait, was wait, definitely wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Five thousand each. Five thousand each. Oh my gosh! And so yeah. this was back in the late nineties. No, and this is the mid. This mid-90s. is ninety-five. And so, what made you think you needed twenty thousand? Where Where did that number come from? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, because we weren't necessarily so clear on budgets and things at that point. I think we just felt like we needed, and and it did prove that we needed more over time. Part Mm -hmm. of it was that we were doing our own productions too. So we needed, and we didn't, you know, we didn't control a studio or anything. So we still would need studio time. Like we were actually making the music at the beginning um, for most of our releases. It was, it was only a bit later that we really started licensing from existing, you know, from artists who would have their own production. Okay. Um, So you know, it, it, we did that 20, 20 grand. There was a period when we were starting to do like around probably 99 where we did another, uh, you know, we had friends and relatives, you know, would give 500 or a thousand just to, that we eventually paid most of those people back. Mm. Um, but it was sort of like, and then when we did dub side of the moon, we, you know, we basically leveraged credit cards and ran up <laughs> thousands of dollars on there to finish that production, um, wow. which we didn't know if it would succeed or not. Sure. And, you know, thank God it did. And so we were able to, to, you know, move forward from that point. So it was definitely, you know, we were, you know, we were releasing seven inches and small, you know, CD compilations and, and things that were not selling a lot mm. at that point necessarily. So, right. you know. Uh, it was definitely touch and go. And and it has been throughout the years, definitely at various points, you know, when it's when the switch to streaming for a year or two, it was certainly dicey as to, sure. you know, what's going to happen with income and can we, you know, how can we pr- proceed? Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I, there's something I admire about that in hindsight, now knowing that you made it and succeeded, but there's something I admire about it because today to start a label and we have you know, thousands of listeners who are starting a label or who have recently started a label, but you don't need 20 grand to start a label. And, right. and, and you can, you don't even need 20 bucks to start a label. And so, right. but there's something, um, it's easier to quit. It's easier to give up or to get discouraged or not to stick with it and be consistent when you haven't invested anything. So if I right. personally have 5,000 on the line and my other friends have 5,000 each, there's a, a lot more urgency, um, and uh, commitment, I would imagine. 
Absolutely. And, and for me, that, that 5,000, I, I had a tiny bit of money that came from when my, when my father had died mm. I had, and it sustained me a tiny bit during, during college. I, I got $10,000 and I was down to my last 5,000 oh, of savings there. I was working, so it wasn't like, but of course I was working in New York City, which means you tend to lose more money than you make just by living. So um, the, you know, but putting that in was really a, a, a basically saying, this is what's important to me. And that really does help sustain you at times, uh, you know, besides the pride in your work and what you're putting out and, you know, the joy in what you're doing. But sure. there is that that feeling of like, yeah, I've put, you know, I've put blood, sweat and tears and equity into this and, and I need to see it through and, and make it work. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to make you seem old, but I imagine that $5,000 in today's money is a lot more. <laughs> I would guess it would be, but not really. Not huge. It's, Maybe not it's huge. Hard to, it's hard to say. <laughs> I'll tell you. It, it's still it a lot of money it, though. Right. And, but it didn't seem like a lot of money to, you know, for, for doing what you, and, and remember back then everything was physical. Yes. So just putting, you know, getting physical product out was, was more expensive than now where you can basically just send files over and get them, you know, set up for streaming. Yes. Um, and so, you know, there were, there were definitely plenty of costs that, that were eating that up quickly. So uh, as it went, I want to ask you about the starting a label in the mid to late nineties, because when I was starting with my own uh, DIY music, it was in the early two thousands and it was mm -hmm. the advent of DIY. And so there were becoming more and more things that were accessible to me, but I was still, I hit a lot of gatekeepers. And I mean, there, it was still the goal to get your music into uh, record stores in the malls, not even just independent right. stores, but chains. And of course right. you couldn't FYE do and everything. Exactly. Yes. And you couldn't do that uh, as an independent artist. I even found it uh, difficult to, for CD manufacturing as a small artist, the, the costs yes. were just completely uh, insane. And I would have to get 2000 CDs. And so what was it like? Uh, how, how many gatekeepers did you run into as, as two college guys starting out? Uh, tons, tons of, I mean, it was definitely not easy and, mm. and it was, uh, you know, it, it was, and still is a business where it's definitely about the relationships and what you can, you know, sure. there were many cold calls getting on and trying to introduce ourselves and, and, you know, that's the first step of having that conversation. And then you got to be able to follow through with what you said you were going to do. Thankfully, once you're doing that a bit, you start building a reputation and you start getting introduced to other people and you can build on what you're doing. Um, but it was definitely, uh, you know, the, obviously the first thing within our genre is we had to build the respect within the Jamaican community because we were very much Jamaican facing in our, in our early phase. Sure. And that was part of what we were interested in. There really wasn't a U.S. reggae scene. It was mm -hmm. very, the U.S. reggae scene was, was mostly isolated bands that were, you know, you'd get a regional band that would cover, um, you know, be more of a cover band and be doing Bob Marley material. And they wouldn't necessarily be touring. They wouldn't really release original material so much. Um, you didn't, it wasn't, you know, New York, we were lucky because we were really part of the Caribbean diaspora. There were so many people that had come from Jamaica and that lived there. So mm. we could access people. And it also meant that you tended to get a number of 
classic great Jamaican artists who would come tour there. Sure. Um, so that was similar to say Toronto where there was a community. Yeah, so you could absolutely. have that, but most of the rest of the U S wasn't. And, you know, we were definitely aiming to be Jamaican facing. So first we had to get over that hurdle. And once yeah. we were kind of being accepted in that way and, you know, very quickly, you know, we got in touch with, uh, and a group called the meditations who were one of the great reggae harmony trios from the seventies and had happened to move up to New York. And through them, you know, we, we got a way to reach out and, and meet them and started working with them. And through them, they liked what we were doing. And they introduced us to Sister Carol, who was, you know, another who had moved up to the New York area um, and had a career. And, you know, each of them would like our vibe and basically say, oh, well, here, you should meet Sugar Minot. You should <laughs> meet so-and-so. And, and we met, you know, we, we did that. Once we were going down that road, that was fine. And we were kind of making it within the genre, but then trying, you know, our goal always was to bring greater acclaim to the genre and to make the, you know, as you say, to be able to make reggae sell in the malls right. uh, more than just in the specialty shops. So, you know, that definitely took a lot. And it was a big deal for us with Dub Side of the Moon you know, when we were getting reviewed on, on NPR or, you know, getting reviews in Playboy and, you know, back when you actually got records yeah. reviewed in, in magazines. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Um, and that was a huge part of what really broke through for us was that campaign and the awareness it created. Um, and it really, it was a very interesting touch and go campaign on, you know, because every gatekeeper in that case came to Dub Side of the Moon, like every review, if you go back and look, the first paragraph was literally, this should suck, but it doesn't. <laughs> like, you know, like this right. idea is ridiculous and why did anyone do it? Yeah. But we listened to it and it's actually really good. Right. And that, you know, once the gatekeeper started kind of having that response, then you can kind of roll that on and each place you're going to until it became a phenomenon, you know, sure. and we were able to build off that. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, go ahead. So you got permission, so to speak, from the Jamaican community to do this just by way of working with reputable artists. Is that, is that right? It was both working with reputable artists, as I said, following through on things we said we were going to do, if we were going to, you know, say whether it's paying royalties properly, whether it's, you know, dealing with mechanicals, getting paid out to mm -hmm. songwriters, which mm -hmm. wasn't happening much at all for Jamaican artists then, um, whether, you know, and just being professional and how we're doing it. And so, um, you know, that definitely helped. And then what really helped as well is that when we would meet artists, um, you know, my partner, Michael, who was handling the music production end of it is really talented and knows what he's talking about mm. with, with reggae. We were, you know, the rest of us were huge fans and, and cared about it. So I think that came across and it didn't feel like we were just, you know, pirates or vampires on, on what was happening. Right. And, and so we, you know, we actually established close ties with a lot of artists that we're still close with over the years, mm, you know? That's great. Sister Carol, uh, Michael, my partner, just what he's in the last year, he just produced a reggae album for Jason Mraz. Oh, and, wow. And so, but Jason Mraz, when he was looking for a guest artist on it, 
Sister Carol is who they went and got because it goes all the way back. You know, we recorded a song with Sister Carol in 1998 and we've been in touch for since then and and just it made sense so mm. you know we we've been very loyal to the people that have been loyal to us and that we've developed friendships with that's amazing know? looking yeah. back now how would you do things differently and i'm asking of course for our listeners who might be in the early stages of running their labels or thinking about starting a, a record label, can you share some some of your lessons i mean if you can remember back that far or or what you it's, might do differently yeah, you know, it's it was such a different age. So a That's lot of right. things yeah. that we did, uh, you wouldn't have to do now. Like, <laughs> just this, I, I remember back to literally to, you know, figuring out how to get our records into stores back then. Yes. Now, now first of all, you've got the internet, at, which, you know, we had the internet then, but it was mostly... You know, it wasn't really as as useful or as yeah. functional. It was much more like going <laughs> yeah. into weird chat rooms, and yeah. things like that. But you know, when we realized, you know, we didn't have distribution to start with, and we really were, you know, we were walk, literally walking around New York City to St. Mark's Place and to into Brooklyn and Queens to Jamaican-run stores to leave a box on consignment and try mm. to come back in a month, you know, to yeah. get paid. And then for Europe, which we knew was a huge part of of the market, you know, what we did is we had a magazine or two and, you know, there were still print magazines that would be reggae specialty and we'd look for ads in there and I'd see, oh, here's a store in England or here's a store in Germany that sells reggae. And I would literally come home from my day job at lunch and make 15 cold calls to Europe to stores <laughs> and just say, hi, I've, you know, we have a, a CD. We're in New York, you know, would you like to try having it? Yeah. And that I think isn't, you know, you don't need to be doing, those are the sorts of, and the truth is those are extremely valuable things to have gone through because, and, and the one thing I'd say is all the mistakes we've made, you learn from mistakes. That's the only way to get better mm. anyway. So mm. there aren't necessarily things where I'd say, oh, we made a you know dreadful error here or anything, and I would go and change that. Luckily, most of the mistakes we've been able to live through, um, you know, the biggest ones, lessons learned on like we had a distributor go bankrupt and they hadn't paid us $30,000 for, for sales that had happened. Oh, and we geez. just lost $30,000. There's no, you know, you yeah. can try to claim it, but you're not going to get it. Sure. So that was a hard lesson to go, oh, you know what? You, we need to make sure you can't just trust that they're going to be fine. You got to make sure you're getting paid the yeah. way, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, they're definitely, but it, it's all a learning process and you gotta, you, you gotta put in your, your hours to, mm. to get anywhere mm. as it goes. Yeah. Uh, let's let's dive into the genre a little bit, and, and this okay. is a, a completely naive question on my part here. But are there like subgenres of reggae? How does that all work? Absolutely. Okay. So absolutely, it you know what's really happened. It it, it has grown into you've got geographical differences for one thing. Okay. And then within within reggae, it's had periods. You know, it changed. It's evolved over time within Jamaica. It started out and your your kind of your biggest earliest stuff was the 60s ska stuff. And ska, it changed, it went from ska to rock steady around I think 68, which slowed down the sound. 
And then it slowed down even further into reggae in mm. around 69, 70, something like that. And then you had your, you know, around that time is when dub was created, when King Tubby was really, uh, you know, a lot of the things that have happened in reggae happened because Jamaica's economy, you know, being a small island, they would get innovative with how do we deal, you know, how do we do, you know, fix this problem? Dub was a case where, you know, it would cost them, they would release things on seven inch. And instead of spending to record a second song for the B-side, they would just throw an instrumental on the mm. B-side. And that way it'd be like, oh, well, we're, you know, we, we don't have the money to, to do another session. Mm. But what ha started to happen is that, you know, someone like King Tubby would say, well, why don't I mess around with this instrumental and make it sound different, drop things in and out, add effects. And suddenly you had a much more interesting B-side happening oh, until cool. it became its own genre. That, of course, eventually is what, you know, in my mind is where electronica and remixing comes from. Mm. You know, it really started with that. Then you had the idea of, you know, it was run on sound systems where the new music would get played at dances and mm. DJs would speak over the stuff and kind of say, this is what's coming and pointing out to people who are in the crowd and stirring the crowd up. That's what eventually led to becoming hip hop when DJ Cool Herc brought that style to his parties. You know, he was sure. from Jamaica and yeah. he brought that. And that's where hip hop comes from. So, you know, it, it has had an enormous influence on music that doesn't get get charted. Mm -hmm. But as it's gone, you know, so in the early 80s or late 70s, they they used to chat in the dances over the instrumentals on the B side. And it became that certain rhythms, certain instrumentals would get used because they would just be favorites. And that's how you recognize something like the rhythm on Armageddon time um, that's so well known. That has become a staple of tons of records because they would just say, well, I'm going to chat. You know, you get used to chatting over that one rhythm and you mm. have a certain thing that works with that. So you would ask for the DJ to play that and then you would do, you know, hop on the mic and do your part. Hmm. That became cod codified into what's known as dance hall, where, you know, that started that kind of revolution using kind of pre-recorded rhythms or existing rhythms instead of writing new stuff and then basically toasting or rapping over that. Incredible. But then you have, you know, you have ska has had second and third waves, right? You know, the second wave of ska in England, where they, you know, where you had all the great madness and English beat and um, the selector and all those bands taking what, you know, kind of reviving the 60s sound, but turning it into their own. And then the third wave in California in the 90s, you know, mm -hmm. doing that and and having the, the, the pop success mm -hmm. with that. The big change for us has been geographically the U, the growth of the U.S. reggae scene, which happened really in the mid 2000s. Wow! And and what started to happen there is that a couple of things. One is that a lot of the classic reggae artists were getting older and not wanting to tour, and so we had a lot less touring of reggae artists happening in the U.S. And so the void started to get filled more by U.S. bands. And in some ways, what's been nice is a lot of bands that we meet who came along later, some of whom we work with now, will point to our record, Dub Side of the Moon, as being something that turned them on in high school to reggae. Wow. And 
kind of led them down a path where they started discovering. Obviously, we had things like Sublime happen in the 90s, Mm. and that created the whole Southern California kind of sound and scene. Sure. Sublime themselves were very into reggae and knew what they were talking about. What happened was that a lot of the people who just listened to Sublime were completely, you know, were one generation removed from the original source. And so the U.S. scene definitely has a lot of pockets where they're not really as aware of of reggae history and start at a certain point with with something like Sublime Mm. and are only later discovering, oh, this is what Sublime was trying to do, you know, that sort of thing. But then a couple of bands started, including, you know, Easy Star All-Stars, we did Dub Side of the Moon, that's our band. We started touring across the country. Bands like John Brown's Body were really important out of Ithaca and Boston to the same way that, you know, that punk bands and hardcore bands in the early 80s were kind of developing their own roots and creating, you know, and going into areas of the country that, you know, you would have at the local college, you'd have fans, but Bands weren't touring there until Black Flag started, you know, creating those roots. Mm. That started happening for reggae here in the mid 2000s and became pretty robust. And now we have some really major bands that, you know, that can do two nights at Red Rocks and sell it out, you know. Um, (laughs) And what happened, what's interesting is then in the early to mid 2010s, the teens, a lot of the younger generation of Jamaican artists started to see what was happening in the U.S. scene, which involved a lot of using social networking. It involved using a lot of, you know, a lot of new marketing techniques and digital ads, a lot of touring. And they started saying, well, what can we learn? What, you know, we can't let them move that far ahead from us. And they started paying attention and doing things that really has revived the Jamaican end, which had been pretty moribund for for a while. Mm. So we're in a period now where the U.S. scene's still going, England has a little scene going, and Jamaica's really popping again with a lot of great artists coming out and doing the things necessary to to get out through, through to the rest of the world. This is so interesting. There's there's recently there's the changing the the definition of world music and I feel like the lines yeah. have become so blurry when it comes to genres and what instruments dictate what category. Um right. pop has, you know, recently adopted a lot of Latin influences and reggae and hip hop influences. Yep. I, I feel like genres are meaning less and less for artists and labels, but I imagine for you it's still pretty important for your label identity. Uh, can you touch on that at all? Yeah. For, for us, what we always consider ourselves, we, we call it more progressive reggae. And, and for us, everything, you know, every band we're trying to sign is we're trying to, to not double up and have everyone sound alike. And so we're trying to find different angles that people approach the genre from. Oh, that's cool. And so there are certainly ones that are going to be more rock reggae hybrids. There are ones that are going to be more traditionalist and trying to sound, you know, even down to recording techniques. We want to sound like 1978. There are ones that are going to, you know, be more pop sounding or more dance hall sounding, more hip hop influenced, et cetera. So, you know, the, the, the goal is that, you know, we want to broaden the genre as much, but still have something that is tying in and true to the original source 
source material and the, uh, you know, the, the source of the genre itself. Um, but we're not slaves to it. We're not trying to be, um, you know, a hundred percent purists or anything like that. We're, uh, you know, and it is true at, you know, reggae in general, just, I think music in general, and this I think does come from the digital, you know, from the availability of streaming yes. of how much you can dig in. Everyone is dabbling in different genres now. I a hundred percent agree. Right. So, it, you know, we haven't, haven't had a stage like the, the, you know, the New York scene in, or the, the punk scene in the early 2000s with the strokes and the hives and everyone where you could say, oh, this is what they're doing. You know, this yeah. is what you're going to hear on this record. It's much more that everyone sounds like a blend of things and it's really hard to pinpoint. And that makes, you know, we're always interested. One of our, one of the groups I love on the label, the Skints out of, out of uh, London, you know, they are, if you listen to their record, they've got songs that sound like Weezer. They've got songs that sound like classic reggae. They've got ska tunes. They've got, you know, soul tunes on there. They're, they're fearless in what they're trying to do, but it makes it harder in some ways. You know, as a music fan, I love it. As someone trying to market music, it's kind of harder yeah. because, you know, it's easier to sell the things that you can just sum up in a sentence and <laughs> find true. that core audience for that's you know? so true so you yeah. know it, it 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 makes it it's a challenge but it is definitely true that the you know things are blending a lot more than I, they used to i uh i love the the lo-fi you talked about kind of like some of the older 60s and 70s recording methods i, yeah. I love that sound i my local records store had a copy of the congos the heart of the congos oh, in the yeah. summer and yep. And I, I just play that on repeat. And and there is something about the, yeah, it's just like there's maybe it's it's the mono about it or there's just something about it that I, I always gravitate towards. It is, uh, it's definitely, um, you know, it's amazing some of the the sounds that they were able to get back mm. back in those days and the, you know, the ingenuity of, of what they're doing. Um, yeah. So you've referred to this a couple of times. I want to, I want to talk about the story of Dub Side of the Moon. Can you okay. tell me about that project? I was just listening to Radio Dread this morning. Yes, um, good. Can you tell me about that and, and, and Easy Star All-Stars and that whole? Yeah. So, you know, Easy Star All-Stars was just basically what we called our house band when we would record, you know, up to that point. Mm. We would do sessions and it would be kind of a re revolving group of people, friends and musicians that we'd pull in from the New York scene. And Michael would produce and write a lot of the stuff going there and then bring in people. I was literally, it was probably 1999 and I was walking around trying to sell our first or second CD to... Um, to stores and I was, you know, walking the streets of New York and listening to on my Walkman uh, <laughs> on cassette, <laughs> so <laughs> listening to Dark Side of the Moon because uh, I grew up, you know, I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan from growing up and it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, hmm, I wonder, that feels like it could work that we could, you know, could cover this and make it into something interesting as the you know, covers in reggae have been for forever, but no one's ever said, I'm going to do a whole record, you mm -hmm. know? And so by the end of that day, I went, I was actually meeting up with Eric, my partner and with Michael and, you know, said, what do you think of this? And by the end of the day, we had the name Dub Side of the Moon and we're like, let's, let's do this. <laughs> and so Michael went back and he, 
arranged the whole record. Um, he kind of had, you know, figured out how to make it work. Wow. And then we went and we just did sessions to, you know, to record it. As I said, it took us three years amidst everything else to kind of get it all done. Yeah. We, he worked that record. He worked really closely with our good friend and, and longtime collaborator, Tikla, uh, Victor Axelrod, who is best also known for, he was one of the founding members of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Okay, yeah. He was founding member of Antibalis Afrobeat Orchestra. Um, you know, he's just an amazing musician. So he co-produced that with Michael. Um, we went and that was a case where you talk about the cold calling. So we realized it was gray area as to what the legality of what we were doing. If we were just doing a song, a cover, we could obviously just do a, you know, get the mechanical license from Harry Fox and pay what we need to pay. Mm -hmm. And there's no question, right? But what was gray was if you do a set of songs that was released as an album, does that mean that the artist needs to, you know, do they have more say or can you actually just force the mechanical license for a set of albums, which is still somewhat unclear. (laughs) Um, our feeling at the time, though, was that, you know, we needed we needed to have Pink Floyd for us and not against us. That if yeah. they were against us, their fans would be against us. And Correct. a lot of the success of this rode on, can we give Pink Floyd fans a new way to listen to something that is biblical to them and, <laughs> you know, and have them interested in it? Um, and so... I basically looked up Pink Floyd management and found their famous, you know, a number in England for Steve O'Rourke, their longtime manager. Mm. And I called them on the phone and spoke to his secretary and said, here's what we're trying to do. Can you let me know whether Pink Floyd would be okay with it? And they said, well, why don't you fax over, fax over what you plan. And a couple of days later, we got a fax back or uh, might've been an email at that point saying, no, it was a fax. I think I still have it <laughs> saying Steve and Steve approved it. Wow. said, that's fine. He said, the one thing you can't do is we don't own the rights. We wanted to do the cover. To the artwork. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to have, you know, the red, gold and green coming out instead of the full prism. Oh, geez, maybe yeah. turn the triangle into a star of David. Or right, something. right, right. And what they said is hypnosis owns all of our artwork. So you can't do that without getting them on board. But we have no problem with the music. So which was, when you think about it, kind of amazing because at the time, you know, the split had already happened between Roger Waters and the rest of the band. So they weren't necessarily communicating. They weren't, you know, I think this was Steve O'Rourke basically just saying, you know what, I'm going to just do it and say it's okay. It's it's probably going to do nothing. You right. know, it's probably in his mindset. Did you send them any music or was it just a fax of our plan? It, we didn't send any music, which uh, is also amazing. Because I'll, I'll go into the, what that meant with Radio Dread and how that messed us up in a minute. Okay. But, but essentially, you know, we still had the other thing that we do, you still to this day need to do, is if you're going to change anything so like we wanted to change a couple of words from like to jaw you know from god to jaw or something like that we wanted to kind of make it one or two little little if you're going to change any lyrics you have to get the approval of the publishers and the writers and if you're going to change any fundamentally change the music which we were going to do you also need them to approve it 
um, you can say it's a, like Weird Al can get away with saying it's a parody. Okay. So there is some level where we could have legally said it's a parody. But remember, we have no money in the bank. Right. So we're like, if Pink Floyd decides to sue us, yes. we're not going to be able to fight it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just going to get a cease and desist and get pulled off the shelves and we're sure. screwed. So, um, so that was that. Um, with Radio Dread, we basically, when we made the decision to do that as a next record, because Dubside had been successful enough and we started touring a version of the Easy Star All-Stars that to this day is still kind of what, you know, majority is who's still touring. But we said, all right, we're going to do Radio Dread. And we're like, we know that they're reggae fans. We know Johnny's a huge reggae fan. And they're totally supportive of independent artists and of things. So we're going to have no problem with this. If Pink Floyd said yes, why would we have any issue? Had, right? w- so, wait, pause for a sec. Had, had Dubside of the Moon been successful by the time yes. you're approaching Radiohead? Yes. Okay. So we had been out. So 2003 is when Dubside came out in February. Okay. We started working on Radio Dread probably in 2005, I believe. Okay. And it came out in 2006. So what kind of accolades did you have to take to Radiohead's people? Uh, We had a ton of positive reviews from all of the major magazines. Um, And we had, we had been on the chart, you know, we were on the reggae chart, which, you know, doesn't say, you know, isn't isn't a fraction sales, but we were on the chart for seven years. Oh my gosh. Um, And so we were selling, we were, you know, we had a good reputation. We were... In England, we were, the band was touring and we went over, you know, I think 2004 was maybe the first time. And that's always been a great market for us. And at those shows, we also, Pink Floyd started applauding it. So we had um, Mm. uh, Claire, who is the female voice on Dark Side of the Moon on Great Gig in the Sky. She came out to a show and met us and was a huge fan and kept talking about us. And, That's you know, we yeah. would see a quote, Dave Gilmore would at one point or someone, you know, was saying, well, I don't listen to many covers, but that, that reggae version is pretty great, oh, you know, wow. or things like that. That's so we were getting, you know, yeah. we had, it, it was, we were in a good place. Yeah. Um, and so we stupidly assumed, Hey, it'll be no problem. We started spending money and recording radio dread. Uh. Um, and we were reaching out at the same time to their publisher and, and assuming everything was, you know, was going to be fine. And we had already dropped a bunch of money. And all of a sudden, one, one like Friday morning, we get an email from the publisher saying, Hey, we're sorry, but, um, Radiohead's decided that, okay, computer is, you know, their sacred cow and they don't want to give permission to let someone do this. Hmm. So we can't let you do it. And so we were, we were freaked out to say the least. Um, And so what we did is that Michael went in and he had two songs that we had finished vocals on and he quickly went and did mixes of those two songs, Electioneering and Lucky, I believe they Mm. were. And then um, we, my partner, Eric and I, spent the weekend crafting what we called the impassioned plea. (laughs) We basically wrote this thing directly to Radiohead that was like, please understand what we're trying to do, the respect we're coming with, where, you know, who we are, you know, and, and basically just trying to lay it out on the line and say, this is, 
you know, if you stop this, it's going to really hurt us. And, and we are going to treat this with so much respect and creativity that you will, you know, you'll feel good about it. Right. So we sent that back on the Monday with the two songs and that Wednesday or Thursday, we heard back and they said, if it's going to be as good as these two tracks, you have our blessing. Oh my God. And proceed. <laughs> and it, oh, was, what a, it was such a Hail Mary that was, that's you know, beautiful. and it worked, it worked out so great because then they were on tour in 2006 when it came out in the U.S. And a friend of ours was close with them and doing merch with them or something. And he went backstage in Philadelphia before a show and played some of it for them. And they came out that night. They like Tom was apparently he listened to the version of Let Down that we did with Toots and the Maytals. Mm. That you know, and that obviously has been booming for us lately yes. because of Toots's untimely death. But they came out and on stage they talked about it and said how great it was. And oh and that goodness. again, that's always with the the tribute projects. That's always what's so important to us to make sure that that the artists and the people who originally were doing these records understand where we're coming from and like what we do to their music. Yes. Um, you know? And, and cause you mentioned this earlier, but if, if they give it their blessing, then obviously that increases the awareness and the sales. If they um, publicly denounce it, then it right. has just the opposite effect that the fans will stay away from it to just to honor their idols. Exactly. But it's even more subtle than that in that, you know, one of the later records we did was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Mm. And in that case, it's also has to do, first of all, with is the fan base open to the musical change and is how core is the fan base? So Pink Floyd and um, Radiohead fans are super loyal. So whereas Michael Jackson has many more fans throughout the world, so many of them are ephemeral, are like, are, you know, they know they'll dance their ass off when they hear Michael right. getting played, but it's not like they are digging deep That's into true. the album catalog. That's where, true. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're more fans found, of pop music. Exactly. Yeah. And in that case, when you didn't have like, you know, Michael was, was deceased and his estate was not easy to work with. And we had no one championing it. And and the fans, so there was no buzz the way there had been with Radiohead fans. And that made a difference in the long run as to the, you know, the comparative success of that record versus the earlier ones. And that was uh, eight years ago. Um, yeah. It, has that that initiative kind of gone quiet or, or is there something else in the pipeline? We're, there is some, we are actually you don't have actively to tell working on it. We're actively <laughs> working on another one. That's great. And, you know, what happened, we had been still, we would take three years between them because it, sure. it is, it is a, a heavy lift to kind of really, it would take us a while to play the, the everyone's favorite parlor game. What record should you do next? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, every record you start, the more you're doing this, every record starts to have more and more flaws as to, you know, why you should or shouldn't do it. Um, and so it would take us a while to settle on something. And then it would take us a while to arrange it and to work on it. Yeah. <clears throat> what also simultaneously happened, you know, since Thriller is that we definitely expanded 
in working with other bands and licensing more records. As, as the scene around the world boomed, we got more involved with a lot of bands that we found that we really liked. And that started to take up more time and be successful in its own way. So that whereas, you know, we weren't as dependent on the one project we controlled. I see. Um, and so in some ways we were, you know, afforded the luxury of saying, oh, well, let's keep working on these revolution releases or these skints releases or whatever, you know, protege, whatever it's going to be. And less initiative to say, hey, we got we to gotta get another one of these out. Yes, I see. So they kind of paved your way initially, but now you're not necessarily as dependent on, on that concept. Exactly. So we, we diversified musically. And now, you know, we've got anywhere from 20 to 30 bands that, that are on the roster um, that are active or inactive. And, you know, each and it, the more as you may know already, but as I'm sure as you talk to each, you know, other labels, you know, once you've got, you know, we don't sign anyone to long term. We can't afford to do more than record by record as we're working mm-hmm. with someone. You know, you don't do a seven album deal or anything with <laughs> someone in our in our business. Sure. So you have to earn it each time. Yeah, as you go, that's great. Right? Though. And that's so, good. but what that does mean is the more you expand you know, if we've got 25 bands on the roster, all of a sudden, you know, six of them in a year will say, all right, we're working on new stuff and we're going to have something ready to go. We want to work with you on it. And suddenly without even looking for new directions or anything, you've got a six album schedule for the year. good point. Yep. So, and we haven't, you know, we are a boutique label. We are still the four of us running it with interns and things. And so... You know, there becomes a bandwidth issue at times to say, well, you know, it's still so important to us to give that same amount of attention that we give every release. And so the busier we get, sometimes the, you know, if things are working, you don't necessarily go back to the other things all the time, you know. There must have been a temptation to make this, um, these cover albums, a franchise in a way that could yeah. totally take over the business, very much like the Rockabye Lullaby uh, right. albums. And by the way, I'm not comparing those in any sense because those are gimmicks and those are, um, and but this is legitimate. I mean, Letdown has 10 million streams, and I right. listened to to No Surprises because that's my favorite Radiohead song, and and that uh. was absolutely stunning. Such a beautiful oh, nice. version. I'm glad you like that. So, uh, but there must have been a temptation. It was like, hey, let's just pump these out once a month. Yeah, there. I mean, and and. I mean, don't get us wrong. It is a gimmick, what we were doing. It's just <laughs> that we were also at the same time, it was a high-minded gimmick. Sure, so it wasn't, sure. it, you know, there have been times where we've thought or or friends or peers and partners have said, well, why don't, you know, for us, it was always, well, the point is to do a full album, right? And find the right album and really oh, put I the see. time in and thought yeah. in on that. And a lot of people say, well, why aren't you just doing, you know, now that's, that's what I call hits and just putting out, Mm-hmm. you know, you know, that sort of a thing. And that just never interested us in some ways. It was more, how can we build this franchise kind of specific to what the vision was and find that right album and do that right thing? It's probably, you know, we've, over the years, we've made plenty of great business decisions. We made plenty of business <laughs> decisions where we followed our artistic muse and it probably wasn't the right business decision to make. Um, but, you know, that that does bring up the, 
Dubside, when that was hitting the first time, there were two different companies that came and essentially were trying to buy it from us. Oh. You know, to have, you know, to absorb Easy Star into them and to get the rights to it. And we, you know, at the time we had after working, we were many of us we were still working day jobs and things. And so there's that temptation and we gave it serious thought. TVT Records came and then Sanctuary came. Hmm. And the good news is when we ultimately said, look, this is too valuable and too valuable to us to to give up give it up now let's ride it out and see what we can do with it but also so we didn't do it in those cases but each of those entities within a year went under and so we had oh, you know we right. would have lost everything like yes, you know tvt okay. ended up getting sued by and having a huge lawsuit and sanctuary overreached and wow. kind of went into that period where they were well, absorbing everything yeah good for so you. Yeah, I remember it actually is reminding me of the um, uh, a couple of years ago. I don't know if they still do it now, but there was like a string quartet tribute records. Yeah, you remember those? Yes. Those were quite good, actually. Mm-hmm. I respect. And there, those. there was some steel drum tributes to, and bluegrass tributes that oh, were going okay. on. For okay, um, okay. And you know, the, the other thing that's made it a little tougher over time for us to continue and and keep you know pumping the not pumping these out are that other people. St- started picking up on, you know, when we did this, the only comparable thing I would think would be that Fish had done a couple of Halloween shows where they would dress up as a, as another album and play an album in its entirety. Sure. But we kind of predate or coincide that trend that started happening where festivals in the UK or, you know, would, would have someone curate and have a band come do their classic album in full you yeah, know, yeah. and kind of start doing around that. And then you started like, you know, Flaming Lips have come and done Dark Side of the Moon mm. as a whole album as well. Like other people started doing this. Sure. And so it made it harder and harder to, you know, to carve out our path and stay unique. And Well, that's um, right. And YouTube musicians, it's all about covers and doing unique covers. And, yes. and people can do bedroom covers now and get it uploaded. Exactly. So I, I, I get that. Um Let's let, let's move on. I, I want to ask you about um, CDs. Must have been a, a big player for you. I yeah. have a lot of memories of of uh, the role that CDs played around the time that you were getting um, uh, getting started. Did you have yeah. a lot of success with CDs in the early days? And, and what was the decline of the CD like for you guys? It, we definitely did. It was the main thing. And you know, vinyl. We did some seven inch records, but not that many. And you know, CDs reigned for a while. We didn't, we would do, we did vinyl in 2003 of Dub Side of the Moon and we had done one or two full-length vinyls before that, but it was much more of a specialist market. It hadn't boomed again. And we definitely, you know, digital downloads came in in what, 2003, four, five, something around there. Yep. Um, so CD was the, the mainstay for what we were doing for, you know, even we were making the ones, you know, I remember switching from the plastic to the digipack, you know, and what a, what an innovation that was when that happened. I got everybody excited again for a year. Exactly. And, you know, and, and when I would go into our little, you know, my storage area and find all the, you know, the plastic ones that had those little cracks on the front that we couldn't sell anymore. (laughs) So, um, but what was interesting to me is, is how everyone predicted the death of the CD, which 
during COVID may finally be accelerating uh, right. because of the lack of, of physical um, yeah. of retail stores. But really, digital downloads are what died quicker with streaming, mm. um, which is a sad thing because digital downloads really helped us for a long time wow. as that as that peaked. And now you can't even like when we're doing a pre-order, uh, you know, a pre, pre-release, it's all about pre-saving to Spotify. Yeah. And you can't even have a direct to iTunes page for a pre-order. iTunes will only direct you to Apple Music oh, and you nice. have to dig around to find a place to actually yeah. pre-order the, the download of the album. Oh. So, oh. you know, so that's been a bigger deal. CDs have definitely dropped in what we need. We're doing fractions of what we used to, but there's still markets and still certain bands. Um for a while, we worked with a great. We we do work with a great band out of Hawaii called The Green, and Hawaii was still a market for years. You know, up until recently, where CDs still still sold, and I think part of that was because of how often people were going down to the beach or going, you know, driving sure. in their cars, and therefore you still had your CD system built in. You weren't necessarily just plugging in your your uh, your phone, right? And so there was, and you had more tourist spots that would just sell a stack, you know, they'd have CDs in the true, corner. True, Yeah. You know? So, well, and like we talked about before we were recording about the uh, how, you know, Wi-Fi was, isn't so strong in different regions right. and stuff and dependable. Right. So, you know. That's very there's still interesting. Markets, there's still a market for CDs, but it's definitely, sometimes we're having, we, we have this year is one of the first times we've done only a vinyl and digital only, and okay. not done a CD run. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point with how easy disc maker is too, you know, or is the equivalent Yeah. to just get a, you know, spend 800 or a thousand bucks and get a thousand CDs since often you're going to need some promo at times for sure. some old school places. Yeah. You will still want to have it to sell if, if bands can ever get back to sell, to getting yeah. on the road. Yeah. So, you know, there's no reason not to do a little amount. And if you're going to do a little amount, you might as well throw a proper barcode on it in case you do want to take it to retail eventually <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it's, it's much easier to break even on them for sure. You really yeah. only need to sell a handful of them. Uh, yeah, right. I, I think, I mean, we've learned, I, I think digital downloads, as you say, um, I really don't see the relevance when you have streaming. Um, but the what we have seen, we've learned from vinyl and cassettes. Um, I, I do think there's a future for CDs. I, I think it'll hit a, it'll hit a bottom and then it might come back up and find a little comfortable that plateau. Yeah. The same way that vinyl had sure. a kitsch thing that's yeah. now morphed into an actual real market yeah. for it. I'm very partial to them. I remember a phase and this is actually, I would kind of associate almost with reggae, but I remember a phase I went through in high school when I was addicted to growing my CD collection. And I yes. always found that, CDs were a great way to get into a new genre. Of course, that's more yep. so now with streaming, but back then you could get a disco box set or a reggae box yep. set for $10. Um, that that was something amazing about getting 100 song CD, uh, 100 songs yep. across four CDs. Um, do you remember that era? Was that something you guys Absolutely. ever Absolutely, no, and in? that's, and even for, for me, like Tougher Than Tough, which was the, you know, the quintessential reggae box set. It was four CDs and it was, put together so beautifully and that, mm. you know, each era was represented on a CD. Right. And for me, even as a fan of reggae, that was a so well done 
that it educated me and and led me into new directions and stuff. And that was definitely a, you know, I, for sure. Mm. The same thing, the Bob Marley box set, the Songs of Freedom set that came out in, what was that, 91, 92? That was another seminal, you know, mm. uh, box set that really, <clears throat> really led people down down good paths of, of discovery. Um, it's a you shame. Know, and... and yeah, go ahead. Box sets just got a bad name when they became yeah. sort of cash grabs at the end, but yeah. th- they were great pieces. Agreed. And and often they were done, I mean, there were some, especially like in our genre, that that Congo's record that you mentioned earlier, mm. there was a great company when we were starting called Blood and Fire out of England that worked with the same um, graphics people that 4AD would use for like Pixies albums and stuff. And they did a whole series of these lovingly done reissues of classic reggae with these enormous, beautiful booklets mm. filled with art. And, you know, and they would have a second disc of B-sides and rarities. And, you know, that stuff was was so important to to getting reggae going again during that period. You know, those, those sorts of reissues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it I, I do miss that era, both, you know, for vinyl and for CDs, the, the package, because that was a huge part for me growing up. Oh, for sure. That you don't get with streaming as convenient as streaming is, you know, the, I, I just have such memories of buying a record, you know, every Saturday I would have <laughs> 10 bucks to go to the record store and, you know, coming back and sitting and like looking at the inner, oh, the, sure. the, you know, the yeah. inner sleeve, yeah. if it had lyrics printed and, yeah. you know, <laughs> and who played on it and, you know, those sorts of things. And that feel, um, it was such a huge part of, of music for me, you know, and I, I miss that. Well, and I, I, I love for when there's, um, the idea of compilations and I want to ask you about compilations, but the idea of compilations and box sets, even in the vinyl world, um, I feel like if there's a genre that I appreciate, but let's say I'm, I don't have a massive reggae collection, but I appreciate the genre. I don't have a massive bluegrass collection, but I do appreciate right. the genre. Um, if there was one seminal $60 uh, double disc vinyl that has, uh, you know, a beautifully embossed uh, yeah. artwork and, and, and on die cuts and all this stuff, I would definitely get that for certain genres just to have in my collection for, you know, that time uh, when I feel like listening to something like that. I, I would appreciate something like that. Absolutely. And also, you know, I, I used to, I would DJ and I would DJ weddings and things like that. And so compilations were also so important for if you needed to have, you know, an hour and a half of things that touched on good stuff within a specific genre that you weren't necessarily totally. trying to be, you know, dig in deep. Yeah. But I would have, you know, I'm if I'm doing a wedding in Virginia, I needed those two bluegrass, blue, bluegrass uh, <laughs> compilations yes. in my collection, you know, yeah. or... But it is true, the discovery, especially, again, in that late 90s, early 2000s period when people started putting out a lot of the great uh, Nigerian, like the Fela reissues that were happening and Ethiopian, you know, there was the Ethiopique series that was Mm -hmm. being done, which I think might have come out of Canada. Hmm. Um, But those sorts of things to like for world music side too was like, well, I've I think I like this stuff. Let me try one of these yeah, and see, you know, yeah. and then many a time you'd be like, well, you know, track 11. You're like, who is this artist? And then you go discover it. And yes. 
you know? Yes. Um, and, and that, that happens now, you know, it's just, it's so hard because Spotify is so great, you know, as a user, it's so great, but you don't, there's no way to replicate that true feel of walking through a record store and having things catch your eye or flip through just names, mm-hmm. you know, and, and going and going, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. it, if you're not actively digging and you, you know, the algorithms work at times, but within certain genres, within reggae, the algorithms are not very good for our genre. They don't, Spotify has never had someone that is a reggae person in charge of the genre. Oh, wow. Apple has, Spotify never has, which means that a lot of times, you know, and the same with say Pandora, the moment you go on a, you know, no matter who it is, Track two or three is going to be a Bob Marley track because their algorithm says, well, if you like reggae, you're going to like Bob Marley. Yeah. And there's so much beyond that, but that's the way algorithms work. So music discovery is now in such the small hands of, of, I mean, it's worse in terms of gatekeeping than what we were talking about before. Interesting. Because it's now monopolized down into much smaller groups of people. Well, you and know? you definitely don't have that artwork experience because you don't. Yeah. It's it's the covers of the of the playlists and and even when I'm listening to a playlist just to discover music, it's it's pretty arduous to get get into that artist or to see the the album cover yeah. that you're listening to and um it's strange. Yeah. Talk to me about compilations. Was that that was something that you guys did? Well, we we started with a compilation, but it was a unique compilation in that we did all of the music ourselves. So Michael wrote a number, basically wrote an album's worth of of instrumentals that we then brought in artists to collaborate to either bring existing lyrics that they had that would work with it or to write with Michael to to Mm. write tunes. So it really was our, it wasn't just like random compilation. It was our vision for what the genre should be. Um, And so we did a second one of that, but we haven't really done compilations since then. Um, Part of it, you know, we've, we've, there's a lot, there's, there are trends in reggae called rhythm albums or juggling albums where, as I mentioned before, if you create a rhythm that is an instrumental, then you might get, they, they would get six different artists to do songs over that same rhythm, do okay. their own song over that same rhythm. And the reason you do that is because then a DJ in the dance could play an extended thing where he's mixing in the different artists, but it's staying the same beat for eight oh, minutes nice. or whatever it is. Yeah. So that started, that had a whole period where it started getting released uh, as albums and that kind of died out. It, it's, it's, I think compilations are hard to sell, the, especially these days when you can just build playlists. That's right. That's right. I mean, even you when, when bands come out with greatest hits album, I mean, you know, uh, the White Stripes and Spoon yeah. have done it recently. And, and it is kind of funny. A lot of the press just even laugh when people come out with the greatest hits album. I still appreciate them, to be honest, like, especially on vinyl. If it's a band I love, I, I have no problem buying it. But yeah, it is, uh, seems a little redundant. It is, and I got to tell you, with Greatest Hits album, there are certain artists that to this day are like, I don't, like, No Doubt is a rec- is a band that I, I don't listen to an individual No Doubt album, mm. but their Greatest Hits is great. Right, <laughs> you know, right. when you take There's all the, few, the yeah. three or four best songs sure. on each record, 
is awesome. Yeah, you know, there are certain sure. bands. Blur is a band that you know I like individual albums, but their greatest hits is nonstop right. amazement. Right. You know, well, and there's some so, bands that their biggest sales are from their greatest hits. Um, bands from the '80s, '90s, and yeah, early 2000s. Or, or our the main problem right now is an interesting thing with SoundScan and with Billboard for our genre and coming soon to every other genre. We were one of the first they moved over where they changed it so that the there's no longer they basically do a top 200 every week it's no longer they you know they put in all of the catalog albums along with everything that's coming out so every week for the past year bob marley's legend album has been <laughs> what's number 1 and it's never going to get uprooted by right, anything. Right. And, and, you know, there are other things that factor into it um, due to streaming that yes. they apply everything to that. But it is, to me, that's a problem because it doesn't show what's, you know, what's motivating or moving forward. Mm. Like, you know, there should, right. at least, there should at least be a catalog chart and then a new release. But Billboard only prints one chart. Well, that's so that funny chart. because, and it's not that necessarily that people that, tens of thousands of people are bought, going out to the shops and buying that record every week. It's more right. so that um, resorts are, <laughs> are playing that playlist. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> true. And and it's also, there's a rule that, that they need to, that they've talked about wanting to change, but they have to do a whole bunch of programming to do it, which is that the legend is the biggest seller of his records, right? Mm. So what that means is, even if you were stream, if you went into an album like Catch a Fire or Natty Dread and you listened to one of the songs that also happens to be on Legend, okay, they count every one of those streams as a Legend stream. I see. Okay, so yeah. it reinforces and makes it that the greatest hits is what gets all of the streams. Like to me, if they change that rule, then you would still see Bob Marley albums being in the top there. Right. But it would be more that, you know, week to week, you'd see Uprising or you'd see Kaya or whatever, I you know, see, showing yeah. up. I see. Um, so instead of it all funneling into the greatest hits. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, uh, they, I think it's 1500 plays equals one yeah. album sale, maybe. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's for, for, uh, for a stream. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Listen, this has been so fun to to chat with you. Um, I I, it. Yeah. man, I, it's been it's been fun to to learn from my perspective so much, and uh, and then to go back over memory lane. Thank you so much for <laughs> doing this. Absolutely, it's my pleasure, and and I love hearing what you're doing with this. And God, you know, Godspeed to anyone who wants to try to start a label in this day and age. Yes. But uh, if you can make it, it's it's so it's a good <laughs> rewarding life. I want to. I want to give a shout out to one of uh, your Canadian acts, Bedouin Soundclash, yes. uh, who yes. I uh, saw, this would be maybe 15 years ago, but I saw play at a university here in town, an outdoor show during Frosh Week. And man, you just can't get, it was it was nighttime. You can't get much better than that for a concert. They, they are, they're a great band and it's nice that, you know, they took years off mm -hmm. and are really just building back there, you know, and, and building outside of Canada. But we saw them play last year in London opening for the Skints mm. and they were doing When the Night Feels My Song. Yeah. Um, and to hear an entire audience, like that's one of those songs that 
everyone's singing along to and is just so well known. And yes. It's nice to see when a band, you know, 15, 18 years after a song like that has has created that kind of an atmosphere and, and nostalgia for, for their music is, is awesome. Yeah. They're a great band and, and I hope they keep going with what they're doing now. So Awesome. Find out more about this beautiful record label by going to easystar.com. I want to thank Lem for doing the show and sharing his insights and his wisdom. So many great nuggets in here. I hope you found this helpful. And again, I want to thank you, our listener, and this community for uh, being so engaged and for supporting and for uh, sharing the show and joining our Facebook community. By the way, if you're not a part of that already, it's... um, I think it's almost at 700 members now. You can go there by going to facebook.otherrecordlabels.com or just searching Other Record Labels in Facebook. And go to our website for our free resources and our marketing course. There's a little bit of a promotion going on right now just over the holiday season. Um, So make sure you get to that quick. Thank you again. Visit otherrecordlabels.com.